Amen. Thank you, David, musicians, choir, as you make your way down. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. We are grateful for you and your ministry to us in song. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Colossians chapter 4, page 1355 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We're in the last chapter of our study through the book of Colossians. Uh, we've been through several different um, series within series, it seems like, as we've studied through all that Paul has to say to the church of Colossae and those surrounding churches in the Lycus Valley. But we're in a place where we're calling a king supreme as Paul has sort of laid this foundation and now um, pass, he is passing the torch to you and me as we endeavor to live uh, in the reality of all that he has said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, and then we'll study Colossians 4. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we want to declare before you that we believe and know that this is a living word from you. It is intended for us. It is relevant and specific to us today. And there is supernatural power in this perfect and errant word that we now look to. And Father, we pray that you'd have your perfect work in us that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive, and we might respond correctly to all that you have to say. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're responding to what Paul has said. What has Paul said? Well, he said a lot of things. But, for example, he laid a foundation for the Lord Jesus by saying things like in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so this is the Son of God incarnate on earth, this supreme, preeminent Jesus that we are... Uh, before we can begin to even have a conversation about how to live the Christian life, we have to know who the Christ is, who is the power and the foundation of the Christian life. Then Paul goes on a few verses later to say in verse 27 that God would make known the riches of his glory and mystery among all the Gentiles, that would be you and me, which is what? It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So this preeminent Christ who reigns supremely over all things, now Paul says, is in us, which is a mind-boggling reality in and of itself. And then we see what he says in the first several verses of chapter 2 where he says, Therefore you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And we have been talking about walking in him, specifically in these areas of our lives where uh, he will so often... Um, show himself to be whether or not he is our Lord. And so in the first few verses of chapter 3, he talked about our personal lives. In verses 8 through 17 of chapter 3, our relationships with others. Then we had a conversation about our family relationships. And then last week in verses 22 and following, we talked about our relationships in the workplace and our witness there. Now we look to this final section in Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open for us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. 
Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now here we see Paul imploring us as the people of God to do two central things. First of all, to cooperate, and then second of all, to carry out. He's calling us that in our cooperation, we would then be empowered and strengthened to carry out the things that he is calling us to do. And he begins by saying that we would continue earnestly in prayer. As you know, uh, certainly by now, unless this is the very first time you've ever been here, then you know uh, that I didn't become a Christian until I was 25 years old. And I was never in church. I was... I was as unchurched as a person could be. And we know that. But the point I'm making this morning is simply this. That uh, shortly after Lisa and I got married, things began to happen in my life that looking back on uh, have no other way to be explained but God. And so in the first year of our marriage, even before our marriage, and during our engagement as we were looking to get married, uh, her father was a retired pastor, and so he's also... Uh, had, was a real estate broker, and so he was helping us find a house. And so one day they drive me out here down John Clark Road to Dara Hills a few blocks down to show me this house. And the whole way out here, I mean, we're probably halfway out here, and I'm like, we're not there yet? And they're like, no. And I'm thinking, do people live out here? I mean, <laughs> where are you taking me? Are we going to uh, Tennessee? I mean, what, what? I've never even been out here. I didn't even know there was houses out here. And so we get out here and we look at the house. Well, I mean, I just walked up, said, I hate it. Let's go. And she's like, well, why do you hate it? I said, I hate it because it's in the boondocks. Who in the world would, I'm not going to drive all the way from out here all the way down to Highway 90 every day to work. Are you crazy? Now, at the time, I lived right on the beach, so I was thinking, I live on the beach, I work on the beach, you want me to move into the boondocks, this ain't happening. So we leave, so we go looking at all these other houses, but this house is always coming back up, coming back up, long story short, we come back out, we end up moving out here. Now, I'm living in the boondocks. So, you know, I feel like uh, it's sort of like Green Acres, like I'm getting accustomed to country living for the very first time, you know, I mean... I didn't even know you could have a, a, a yard that big. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, I'm looking at my yard thinking, what do I need, like tractors? I mean, how do you even mow all this? So anyway, that was part of the process. And then we move out here, and one thing leads to another. And uh, suddenly, Lisa starts coming to church at this little church down the street. And... Uh, um, I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know anything about church, but I don't know why I would go there, but I'm glad that you're going there. But over time, she began to change, and things began to be differently, and then one thing led to another, and then finally one day I came to church here with her. And in the meantime, as all this was going on and we had moved out here, uh, one of the central needs of my business, I was running my jet ski businesses, I needed... Uh, I was always in desperate need for a mechanic. And one day I met a mechanic, and he said, uh, well, I'd be more than happy. He was a certified mechanic, and he said, I'd be more than happy to 
be your mechanic. And I said, you don't understand. What, what, when you say you're going to be my mechanic, I'm, I'm talking about you're going to have all the work you can do year-round, sun up to sundown. He goes, okay, I can handle it. The only stipulation is you have to bring the skis to me. I go, fine, where do you live? He goes, well, I live, if you get off at the canal exit and go north and go out there to Robinson Road, I live right out there. I go, I think I live out there. <laughs> and I said, I, here's where I live. He goes, yeah, that's right there. And I go, well, I drive by there all the time, so I can just drop stuff off and pick it up. That'll be great. That's the first Christian person I ever met and got to know. And I can remember early on as I'd be dropping off the skis at, at Michael's house and at his parents' house, and he'd be working on skis, and I'd come home, and I'd, I'd tell Lisa, I'd say, you know, that, that guy that's working on my skis, that, I mean, they're weird. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, they don't cuss, they don't drink, they eat dinner together at the table every night. I mean, they are weird people. <laughs> I've never met anybody like this before. And we became friends. And then his mom and dad, Merle and Jimmy, started ministering to me and being a blessing to me. And then I come and I visit church here and all these things are happening. And then they go to church here, you know, and one day I'm talking to him and he says, well, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll work on it after church. And I said, well, you go to church? He goes, yeah. I go right up there to Michael Memorial. I go, my wife goes to that church. And all these little things started happening in my life that had never happened before. Now, what changed when I married Lisa? The day I married Lisa, probably a few months before that, was the first time in my life that anybody ever prayed for me. Nobody ever prayed for me, ever. Who would they be? But when I married Lisa, people started praying for me. And suddenly things started happening in my life that at the time I couldn't really see. But looking back, you can see that God started circling the wagons. Why didn't God do that when I was 20? Why didn't God do that when I was 15? Why didn't God do that when I was 10? I don't know. I'll have to ask him when I get to heaven. But I can tell you this. What changed was people started praying for me. And I know that the first time Lisa's parents met me, they really started praying for me. <laughs> and I want you to know that no one has to convince me that prayer works. Nobody has to encourage me that prayer works. Nobody has to say to me, uh, tell me some story to make me believe that prayer works. I'm telling you right now, I'm a living, breathing testimony of the power of prayer, that my life turned upside down specifically and strategically when people started praying for me. And so Paul at the end of everything that he said and all the admonishments he's given to these believers, he calls them to continue to pray earnestly. And this is where this first principle comes in about cooperate. He says cooperate. In other words, talk to God about unbelievers. Have conversations with the Lord about those who don't know him. He's calling the people of God to cooperate with him in what he's doing. Look at verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, 
praying also for us, Paul says, that God would open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, this is the greatest evangelist and church planner who's ever lived outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if ever there was a human who didn't need any help in any way to accomplish the ministry that God had given him, it was the Apostle Paul. This is the most gifted, the most unbelievable uh, man of God who accomplished more than anybody could ever imagine. And here he is with all of his capabilities and all of his, his, his walk and closeness with God. And he's asking this young church to cooperate with him, to pray for him, to be engaged in what he's doing. You know, Every Sunday morning before service, a group of us men meet together and pray for the, the services. And we pray that God would move in the services and that God would be honored and blessed by this Lord's Day and everything that happens here. And on most Sunday mornings, Bill Schroeder prays this prayer. He says, And Father, I pray that we might be known as a church of answered prayer. And whenever he prays that, I always smile because I think to myself, God, you have so graciously answered that prayer over and over. And what a great prayer that is to pray that God would continue to do that among us, that we are truly a people of answered prayer. Paul says, take hold resolutely to grip tightly and pray. Now notice Paul, at this time, he's in prison. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't pray that he would get out of prison. He doesn't pray that his needs would be met or that he would have this, uh, that, that his discomfort would pass and then he would be able to do what God called him to do. He prays that in the midst of where he is, in the place of where he is, like we talked about last week, that if you're a Christian and you're somewhere, then God has something to do for you or you wouldn't be there. That's the reason that you're there. And so Paul doesn't pray for his own well-being, but he prays that where he is, there would be cooperation amongst the people of God to accomplish this amazing work that he's been called to accomplish. Now, why does he do this? Why would the Apostle Paul in prison in this huge city surrounded by many brothers and sisters and, and uh, all sorts of witnesses and testimonies and so on and so forth, but why would he say this to these young Christians who are struggling in, in uh, Colossae? They're, they're, they're confused about some things. They, they need to sort out the supremacy of Christ. Why would he do this? And I think several reasons. First of all, because he understands that God loves people. He understands God loves people. And I think that drives everything that he does. When there's a reason why that the most familiar verse in all the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. Because there's something about saying that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. That he loves people, that he loves the world in such a way that he proves that in the giving of his son, that he is a preeminent lover of people. 
And so if you recognize that God first and foremost loves people, then you will A, cooperate with his people, and B, cooperate to reach more people because God loves people. He loves his people. He loves all people who are created in his image, which is everyone. Secondly, I think, because God answers prayer. Paul knows this. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 33, the Lord says, If you call to me, I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That God answers prayer. And we get confused a little bit about, well, now, how does a sovereign God answer prayer? If God is sovereign, if God is going to do what God is going to do, if he has power and authority and knows all things and is all-powerful, then doesn't it seem a little silly for little bitty us who don't know what ought to be to pray and ask God to do things when we don't really know what ought to be done. God does. Wouldn't it be better for us to just sit down and be quiet and let God do whatever God's going to do? Well, that may make human sense to you, but that is clearly not the teaching of Scripture. One of my favorite quotes is from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said, prayer is not responding to God's reluctance, but prayer is initiating God's willingness. Prayer changes us. It changes you and it changes me. Prayer moves our agenda onto his agenda. Prayer brings us to a place where we understand the things that God is doing around us to a degree that we could never do without prayer. Prayer moves and shapes the hand of God. God is a God who answers prayer. And it's a baffling thing to think of what the Bible says about prayer and then to think, why do so many people struggle to pray? And I think that's a complex question with a complex answer. But I think one of the problems that we have is that sometimes we, we're not sure who God is to the degree that we are a little bit afraid to pray because we don't know how he's going to answer. That he may answer in a way we don't want him to, which is sort of silly. And, and then we think, well, if I wouldn't have prayed that, God wouldn't have done that. And so now I sort of prayed myself into a jam. I know that sounds kind of silly, but that's what our mind does. But what does the Bible say about that? For example, in Luke chapter 12. You see, you have to know the, the character and the nature of the one that we're praying to. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the character and nature of the God whom we pray to. That it is his pleasure to give us the kingdom. That he delights to respond to us in prayer. And that the point is, is that he's not going to give you bad things. He's going to give you the best thing because he's a good father. If he, was, if he gave you bad things, he wouldn't be a good father. That doesn't mean that you're always going to know or that you're going to see the goodness through the trial or whatever the case may be. But the character and nature of God is to love you in such a way that he delights in giving you the kingdom. So I think Paul calls us to pray because God loves people and because God answers prayer. And then thirdly, because he knows that God creates opportunities. See, God is the door opener. If there's a door spiritually to be opened, then God is the one who has to open it. That we don't open and close doors, God does. Notice he says in verse 3 that God would open to us a door for the word. Now... If we open the door, nothing will happen. 
But if God opens the door, then it's a whole different set of possibilities. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 to this amazing little church in Philadelphia, here's what God says. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. I mean, this is a faithful church surrounded by persecution where everyone is bailing out and denying God under the pressure of the persecution, but they're standing firm. And he says, I've opened a door and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. You see, he opened a door for them because they were faithful. And when he opened that door, nobody could shut that door. And what is the door that Paul's talking about that would open? He says it's for the word. It's for the word. It's for Jesus. The Bible says in the beginning of the Gospel of John that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That Jesus is the word, and the word is Jesus. And the Bible says that Paul wants the, the, the door to open not for him to get out of prison or not for him to get things that he wants out of life, but for the gospel, for Jesus, for the word of God, not for some ingenious strategy to reach the world, not for some uh, cool presentation to reach the world, no, but that God would simply open the door for the word because the word is his priority, and that's really the issue here is an issue of priority. You see, when we pray... When we don't pray, we tell a lot of things about ourselves. We, first and foremost, when we don't pray, we're declaring our, our unbelief. But then when we do pray, what we declare when we do pray is what we know and understand about the character and nature of the God who we pray to. And secondly, we expose our priorities. We expose the things that matter to us most. And so when we pray... If you listen to what you pray, if you listen to what the people around you pray for, sometimes they'll sound like someone who's in prison praying that God would open the door that they'd get out. But what you want to hear is someone praying like someone who's in prison that while they're in there, God would open the door for the word. You see, we have to be careful or we'll spend all of our time praying that we'll all get well. And we've had this conversation before, and we'll have it a million more times because we can never have it enough. But here's the reality. How are ICU nurses and doctors going to become believers if Christians don't get sick? See, the question is, where you are, would you pray for God to open a door where you are? And that if God didn't want you there, you wouldn't be there. You see? And, 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 and I, that's hard for us sometimes because you're thinking, well, you mean God wants me in the ICU? I'm just saying I don't understand all the ways of God. They're not for me to understand. But here's what I know. He can do anything. And he loves people, and he wants to reach people. And in order for him to reach people, he needs us to be in all the various elements of our society, and he also needs us to be in all the various places of this earth. That that's what he needs. 
And that's what he's going to do. And however he's got to, whatever he needs to do to do that, his love for people is going to drive that understanding. Which is why the Bible, the New Testament in particular, always downplays this life and this earth and always exalts eternal life and the life to come. Because once we leave this life and pass to the next life, there's no more reaching people anymore. So there, there, would, be, there would be no, no need for suffering or pain. There would be no good that could come from any of that. There's no more evangelism. There's no more teaching. There's no more preaching. Sometimes I, I think about that, that my whole skill set is going to be completely outdated when we get to heaven. So I got to use it all up now while I can. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see that God puts us in places, and we need to pray together that God would open the door for us wherever we are for the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that wherever we are, we'd, be, we'd have opportunities that God has opened before us to be able to share the word and to bring unbelievers to him. But all of that starts by cooperating in a conversation with God about unbelievers. If we never pray about unbelievers, then we expose our our low priority about those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we don't ever want to become a church that spends all of our time praying that we would all be well. I want all of you to be well because I love you and I care about you. But I know that's not a reality. But I want you, wherever you are, in whatever circumstance and situation you're in, I pray that God would open a door for you for the word. For the word. Because that's the priority. And I mean, if we're just honest about it, sometimes, sometimes when I'm with some of you and you're in a very critical, serious health crisis and my spirit bears witness with your spirit and we both know that no matter what happens, you're going to be with Jesus and I'm standing there next to you before they wheel you into the OR, and I pray for God's hand to be upon you, which he's promised that it will be, and I thank him for never leaving you or forsaking you, and I declare to him my absolute belief that he can do anything he wants to do anytime that he wants to do it. But there's a place in my heart that's kind of thinking, but you might get to go there before me, and I'm kind of jealous about that. That's why my greatest prayer is that God would come get us all at one time. That today would be a great day to just come swoop us up. Just come get all of his children together. He says to be thankful as we pray. So many times as we start to pray, we immediately jump into all of the things that are wrong. We look at prayer, our motivation to pray is all of the things that are bad and wrong. Now certainly we should pray about all the things that are messed up and bad and wrong. But 
Have you ever had a relationship with somebody when all they ever do is tell you the negative things? It's kind of a bummer, isn't it? For some of you, you'd hate to be God and listen to you pray. You're kind of a bummer, man, in prayer. You whine and moan and complain about things, and God's done all these miraculous things around you, and all you can do is whine about the bunions on your toes. And them nice shoes you can't wear because it hurts so bad. Paul calls us to cooperate and to talk to God about unbelievers. Secondly, he calls us then to carry it out, to carry out, to take God to unbelievers. He says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, for me, the key to understanding verses 5 and 6 really come in the word toward. That's the word that really kind of launches my understanding of everything that's happening because that word is an is a word that is offensive. It's not defensive. It's a word that is proactive. In other words, notice how Paul assumes from the very beginning that we're going to continue earnestly. You see, Paul's assumption is that we're already praying because we're believers and what believers wouldn't be praying. But then when he gets to this carrying out the mission part, he's talking about us advancing toward those who are on the outside. You see... I think the point Paul's making is that this whole point is moot if you're just coasting. Nobody just coasts towards unbelievers and something happens. That's not how it happens. It's an intentional, proactive, preempted by prayer movement towards those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You see, Paul has went to, to excruciating uh, detail in, in letting us know that Jesus is supreme and that no one else is higher than him, that he's the highest of all, and that as the universal Lord of all, therefore, all people need to know him. That, that knowing anything else, no matter how good things could be, cannot equate to that, that that is the greatest knowledge anyone could ever possess. So the motivation is is that I know the greatest thing that can ever be known that is meant to be known by all people of all tribes, nations, tongues, everywhere on the planet. And so it's not a message for some, but it's a message for all. In all, not for some places, but in all places. All people, all places, the whole world. Because he is the supreme Lord. He's not an American Christ. He's not a European Christ. He is a universal Christ. He's the Messiah of all people created in the image of God. And we have to remember this, that, that these, are the, these are the motivating factors in the heart of the Apostle Paul who is responding here. And so he, he says, you, you should walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. You should be walking in wisdom toward people who are outside. They're not on the inside. You're on the inside. They're on the outside. But God wants them on the inside. 
And the way they're going to come on the inside is that you're going to pray and your brothers and sisters are going to pray and then God's going to open a door and then you're going to walk through that door towards the people on the outside and you're going to speak the word into their life and God's going to scoop them up and bring them back. See, that's exactly what happened to me. People started praying and doors started opening that nobody really realized. No one even knew the doors connected at the time. But I was meeting people that lived out here in a place I'd never even been that all of a sudden I found myself in this, why was I here? Because God knew that a door was going to open, that all these little doors opened to lead to the church door. And when I went through the church door, I heard the word. And the word of God blasted my soul open and God saved me and became my savior. But it all happened because people prayed and then people moved towards me who was on the outside and they brought me on the inside. And that's what we do. Now how do we do that? Practically speaking, well Paul says, let your speech always be with grace. Always be with grace. Season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You know that word always in verse 6. If you look it up in the original language, it means always. It means every time. It means without exception. It means exactly what it says. That whenever you are speaking, whenever you're moving towards someone on the outside through a door that God's opened, you move towards them with grace with unmerited favor that that the biggest misconception that people have about God is that they need to somehow earn or merit what God has to offer that's the problem that you're going to face in every context in every culture people are always going to be trying to clean themselves up and fix themselves up so they're worthy to to know God, they're going to think that they're going to have to do certain things so that God would even consider them, that they're going to have some sort of mixed up works, understanding, and tendencies with regards to this God who created all things. And he says, no, you've got to always lead in with grace. You see, you can't walk in wisdom and always speak in grace and then do some of the things that people do in the name of evangelism and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what this is teaching me. That it's teaching me and it's teaching you this morning that when, you, when God opens a door for you to walk towards someone on the outside, you might want to shy away from phrases like burn in hell. Those typically don't fall into the grace category. You may eventually get to that burn in hell conversation, but you, you don't want to lead with that. It's, it's probably not going to be a, a real productive uh, conversation. That's not really walking in wisdom, and it's certainly not letting your speech always have grace. Now, certainly you can have a, condom, a, a conversation about an eternity separated from God and the reality of hell in the context of grace. But you see, if, if your evangelism boiled down is really just pointing out all the things that unbelievers are doing wrong, maybe that could potentially have something to do with why you're not very instrumental in leading people to Christ. Listen, 
They know what they're doing is wrong. They don't need you to point that out. They don't need you to point that out. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know that doing it is hurting them, not advancing them. They realize that the things that are most important around them aren't working the way they ought to work. Whether they admit that to you or not, the reality is they understand that. They know that. They were not created to live that way. And in living that way, it's never going to work the way it's supposed to work. So they really don't need you to point it out to them. What they need you to do is point them in grace to the solution. You see, I only want to have a conversation with my doctor about where it hurts, how bad it hurts, and how often it hurts. The only reason I want to have that conversation with him is so that it will lead me to the solution. Now, if that conversation is not going to lead me to the solution, which is why I really don't want to have that conversation with anybody else. Because what's the point of that? In other words, people know, they know that their lives are a mess. They know that. What they need is for you to come to them in grace and help them understand how to fix that. And nine out of ten times, they're going to have some major misconceptions about who God is and what grace is. And so pray together that as we carry this out, we would continually grow more and more proficient at allowing grace to proceed first and then truth to follow, just like the Lord did when he came. You see, the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, it's appeared to all men. And we, as his people, should make it our mission in this life, because it was Jesus' priority, so it ought to be our priority, that all men would know this grace. And the people that don't know this grace would know this grace, that we'd be instrumental in bringing him this grace. That today, as I'm standing right here and you're sitting right there in this very moment, there's 1.7 billion people on the planet who do not have access to the Word of God. They have no access to it. It's not in their language. There's no believers around. They don't have access to God. Now, that is a problem. Because if, if the highest priority in the kingdom of God is that all people would know him and worship him as, is, as they're intended to do, and 1.7 billion people don't, then you don't have to pray about, God, what is the most heartbreaking reality right now? It's not the economy. It's not the unemployment rate. It's not the shenanigans of the uh, presidential election. It's not any of those things. It's not, it's not the horrific atrocities that are happening. It's not the spread of disease. It's not the most horrific thing to God is there's 1.7 billion people that don't know him and have access to his word. Now, if they have access to it and they reject it, that's one thing. But if they don't even have access to it, that's another thing. Now, how can the world be filled with billions and billions of Christians, and yet we fail so miserably at this task. Sometimes I get concerned about this, the, the state of the church of our day. I, I look around and I see things and I hear things that, that trouble me. 
And I, I ask God to continue to keep within us a, a spirit of perseverance that we would not shy away from those things that are most difficult just because they're hard. But that what we would do what God would have us to do, understanding that oftentimes those things are the hardest things. See, the Lord said to the first little group of believers. He said, I'm going to leave and things are going to change. And when they change, here's how they're going to change. And here's what you're going to do after they change. He says in Acts chapter 1 that you, speaking to me and you, us, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That it's a very succinct plan. That you don't have to wonder what the priority is. Here's what it is. It's very simple. And so there's a lot of things that we're called to do. But this is one thing that we can never neglect to do. That we must be a people that are committed to following through with what God called us to do. That we are to be his witnesses. So that means that we have to pray together and cooperate together and work together. That God might open doors for us to walk through and share the word. That means in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our country, and around the world. That all of those things. That we are to be his witnesses in all of those places. And that what comes out of our mouth is going to be a, an illustration of what's in our heart. And so if we don't speak with grace, then what the Bible says about that in Matthew chapter 12 is that grace isn't in our hearts. Because the Bible says that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we have to have a heart full of grace. You know how we're going to have a heart full of grace? We're going to continue earnestly to pray. To pray for each other. To pray that God would open doors for the word. Now you see the thing is, is that I'm not telling you something you don't know. I think sometimes the most dangerous thing for us is to take for granted or maybe to miss the unbelievable things that God has done right here in this room. That listen, you're a peculiar people. And that I just have to confess to you that when we embark on things, I know that a lot of times I sound really confident. That's just for your benefit. I mean, I honestly, sometimes things come out of my mouth and I think, have I lost my mind? I mean, really? And when we just made this conscious decision five years ago to, to, to begin to dream, what would it look like? What would it look like if we cooperated together and asked God to open doors for the word? To be these people, what would that look like? And I would, in the back of my mind, realize as, as I would say these things, like that one day 
we would potentially, possibly, in some, just in my lifetime, that we would maybe get to a place where 20% of our budget was devoted to Great Commission work. I mean, we've, we've obliterated that. That's, I mean, honestly, when I said 20%, I thought, in my lifetime, I didn't know that that was going to happen in the next couple of years. That people, literally, if you look around this room, the amount of cooperation and what has been accomplished in this room is absolutely mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. In this very text right here, I feel like this text right here is where I live and pastor most of my life. Because you do this. Now, I'm just going to show you one glimpse. This is just a sliver, and I mean a sliver, of one small area where this text right here is being lived out in this room right here. Watch this.